Good evening to you all. Tonight I'd like to talk about a particular quality of mind that has several different images that might be associated with it. On one hand, it can be experienced almost as a kind of mountain-like quality, quality of mind that is very solid and unmoving. And yet in another kind of manifestation, you could use the image of a surfer, someone who is in contact with water and who is constantly needing to adjust and readjust what's being done with the board and with the body in order to find a wise relationship with the wave. So this quality, equanimity, is a very important emergent property of Buddhist practice. If you know anything about the seven factors of awakening, you would know that equanimity is the last of these, the last to come online, so to speak, in the progression that starts with mindfulness. And yet it's interesting to see when you look at the structure of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, there's really not any separate mention of this quality. Hmm. So that is kind of an interesting omission to me. But it falls very much in line with my understanding that this particular quality of mind, while it can be cultivated directly in a couple of different ways I'll describe later, is something that most often is developed through direct connection with reality. If the mind frames that connection with reality in a particularly wise way, So this word equanimity in English refers to a state of kind of connected, accepted, accepting balanced openness or relaxed and centered presence, clear non-resistant allowing, spacious stability. And in our Buddhist system, there are a couple of different Pali words or phrases that are used to discuss this. The first of which is upekka, upekka, which is often translated as balance of mind or non-reactivity or equipoise, evenness. And there's a particular Pali phrase describing this state, which is tatra majat tata, which is translated as to stand in the middle, a kind of inner stability that's not thrown out of balance, centeredness. And with any of these kinds of qualities, of course, there can be inadvertent associations with the word that it's good to uh, clear up because 
particular associations are actually not accurate, although they may naturally arise in the mind. So to clarify what equanimity is not, well, obviously the far enemy would, would be a state of reactivity that might, for instance, consist of craving or consist of aversion. So those would be the far enemies. But some of the things that might be considered to be near enemies might be something like suppression where we attempt to deal with an arising experience that's, uh, that we don't like by kind of stuffing it down or denying it or tightening around it. And of course, this is a form of fear. You know, and sometimes the mind is going, well, I'm not going to react, I'm not going to react, I'm not going to react. <laughs> well, you know, you're reacting, but you're reacting by pretending you're not going to react. So suppression is not what's being talked about here. Nor is uh, apathy or indifference or callousness part of uh, equanimity's nature. So in those kinds of states, we're actually not connecting with what's going on, but there's a kind of withdrawal from it in a defeated or deluded manner. You know, like, I don't care. It doesn't matter. I don't care. You know, that's all right. Doesn't bother me. So some of the uh, early translations that of uh, Upeka kind of tilted the public understanding in the West in a direction that mischaracterized equanimity in this direction of indifference. And uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi talks about this uh, as being a misunderstanding, a mistranslation of the, the word. He says, you know, it, uh, this understanding or translation of equanimity as indifference seems to suggest that there's actually an indifference to human beings or an indifference to human suffering, and that that is not the case. He says, you know, it's an, equanimity actually is an evenness of mind, an unshakable freedom of mind, a state of inner equipoise that can't be upset by gain or loss, honor or dishonor, praise or blame, pleasure and pain better known as the eight worldly winds. He says, Upeka is freedom from all points of self-reference. It's indifferent only to the demands of the ego self with its craving for pleasure and position, not to the well-being of one's fellow human beings. And Shinzen Young has a uh, really quite brilliant comment about the difference between equanimity uh, and indifference. And it, he says, equanimity involves non-interference with the natural flow of subjective sensation. Meaning, the system isn't closing down in suppression or trying to get away from its experience. It's, there's a kind of allowing there. Then he says, apathy implies indifference to the controllable outcome of objective events. So he's saying apathy is a circumstance where something could be done, but the mind is just not bothering to do anything about it, things, even though it could. And he says, thus while seemingly similar, equanimity and apathy are actually opposites. Equanimity 
frees up internal energy for responding to external situations. By definition, equanimity involves radical permission to feel experiences as they are, and as such is the opposite of suppression. So he's saying not only is it uh, not apathy, but it's also not suppression. As far as external expression of feeling is concerned, internal equanimity gives one the freedom to externally express or not, depending on what is appropriate to the situation. So there's wisdom being pointed to in this state as well, because equanimity means one is not driven to reaction. Rather, there's enough poison in the mind that one may act, which is a different thing than being compelled into reaction because the mind has no other options. So if we're going to say, well, okay, I'm getting an idea about what equanimity is, but what is it in relationship to? And the answer to that would be, well, every kind of experience or situation that you might imagine. So in thinking about why this might be of value, there's some obvious reflections that might be made, which is, we live in this dimension of reality where there's limited ability to choose what we experience. And as you have noticed, and, and as we've uh, talked about many times, there is this truth of impermanence where we really don't have the capacity to select for the experiences we want or deselect for experiences we don't want. Rather, we're in this uh, circumstance where everything is in flux, everything is in motion, and our ability to control uh, what comes up in the heart-mind or even controls through the sense doors is really limited. So in a certain kind of way, these many waves, to go back to our surfing image, these many waves or experience are always arising. And then the, the question is, well, given that that is true and that we can't control that flow of changing circumstances and experiences, what are we going to do? How can we come into wise relationship with this situation? And just like the surfer doesn't get to choose the wave, we don't get to choose what arises and is known. But we can develop a certain un set of understandings and a certain set of competencies and capabilities that allows us to find a wise stance in relationship to what's happening. So we can't push away a wave. We can't hold on to a wave. Here it, here it is, here it is, here it comes. This is it, this is what it is right now. And now what? So we know, for instance, when we struggle against what is painful or unpleasant, then we also suffer from aversion to what we're experiencing. If we struggle to hold on to what's pleasant, we also 
suffer from greed or craving. But if we're free from the struggle of aversion, we don't suffer, even though what we experience may be painful or unpleasant. So the experience is known for what it is as it's happening and then passes through our awareness without destroying our peace of mind, which is a description of the mind with equanimity meeting a difficult or painful experience. And in the same way, if we're free from the struggle to hold on to what what we like, what we find pleasing or pleasant, then we're able to connect with and allow that pleasantness without becoming unhappy when things change. The experience is known for what it is and passes through our awareness without destroying our peace of mind. And this is another description of equanimity. So when we're balanced and centered and present, then we're experiencing equanimity for ourselves. And from this state of balance clarity, we have the maximal ability to act and choose in wise and skillful and effective ways. Ways that promote our own well-being and that of other others. And we can also choose not to act out of reaction, to not be driven to compulsive and unwholesome kinds of responses. The mind can remain un- unmoving like a mountain when that is skillful as well. And you know, certainly in the Buddha's own life, there are many uh, circumstances where you could see his own stability, his own equanimity of mind where his mind didn't waver and didn't go into a state of reactivity or collapse when difficult things happened. So if you know the story of his uh, awakening of what happened when he took his seat under the tree the night of his uh, illumination, you will remember that as he sat under the tree he took this vow that he wasn't going to get up no matter what happened, even if his uh, blood dried up and his bones turned to dust. Uh, He said, before I will move, I I I will just stay here. I will stay here until my mind opens and I find the truth I've been seeking for, uh, the welfare of beings. In the story of his night under uh, the Bodhi tree, there were many things that arose in his mind that could have thrown him off stride, right? There was the uh, Mara, this uh, personification of delusion sent, for instance, uh, the visions of the pleasant in the form of uh, various uh, attractive beings to uh, encourage him towards craving and and lust. And then when uh, Mara also sent um, after that uh, flaming arrows and fearful armies and um, forces of aversion, personifications of this quality of mind, of fear and anger and aggression. And then lastly, when the Buddha was unmoved with those uh, experiences and kept his seat, 
sitting like a mountain, recognizing all that was arising in his heart and mind, but not moving, not wavering. Then the last, of course, was the voice of doubt, the voice of delusion, where the question that was put to the Buddha, or which arose within his own heart mind was, you think you're gonna break through reality? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? The great question of doubt. And it said at that moment the Buddha reached down and touched the earth and asked it to witness to his goodness and to his right to sit under the tree in this particular search, given his long, long history of cultivating the heart and mind with this altruistic intention to find freedom for himself and others. So there were many episodes in the Buddha's life where he was, he was called upon to display or had the opportunity to, to display this quality of equanimity. There were several assassination attempts against the Buddha in his life. Sort of interesting. Um, on one occasion, some uh, competitors in, uh, got an elephant, a bull elephant, drunk. And then when the Buddha was walking down a narrow uh, street, used goads to try to get it running towards him to stampede him. <laughs> so we think we have problems, you know. <laughs> so the, the, the Buddha basically pervaded loving kindness, it is said, and the, the elephant stopped in its tracks and knelt down to him. And on the the night of the Buddha's death, uh, you know, he had a painful death from what seemed to be food poisoning. If you can imagine what that was was like, you know, he's surrounded by certain disciples and uh, Ananda among them, his cousin and his uh, dear friend as well as attendant. And in a a really um, human moment, as this is described, Ananda is kind of there and he's, he's losing it. You know, he's, he's starting to cry. He can see what's happening and that the Buddha is going to die. And um, the Buddha turns towards him and says, you know, don't, don't, you know, don't want to be carrying on like that. You know, you, you want to you want to do your practice. And the, some of the last teachings to the group was a teaching around the nature of impermanence. Something along the lines of, all compound things are impermanent. Uh, go forward with diligence to secure your own release. He was actually taking the occasion of his own death and his own display of ultimate impermanence as an opportunity for teaching um, those who were there. So that's serious equipoise.
So this question is then, how do we learn to open to this quality of equanimity, no matter what we experience? Probably uh, assuming we're not going to deal with rampaging elephants. But we've got our own versions of this kind of thing, right? What's it, what's it take for us as human beings, for instance, to, to be able to uh, tend to a family member or a, a friend uh, as they're dying? Or what does it take in order for us to come to some kind of peace with and some sort of acceptance of the process of getting old ourselves? or to deal with a loss of position or wealth or health or to be in a situation where um, the minds around us are reactive and yet we're called upon to act. You know, to be a citizen in a... a community or in an environment where there are very unwholesome uh, energies and public trends, but we need to act, we need to contribute from our own place of wisdom. To do any of those kinds of things, we need to have this, this quality cultivated and developed in ourselves so that we're not just at the mercy of what's happening to us or happening around us, but rather we can find a place of power uh, internally and act from that place of clarity and balance. So if we're gonna look at how to cultivate equanimity, There are a number of different methods. So the first thing that you could point to is it can be cultivated through reflection and actually through parami practice itself. So we've talked just a little bit on this retreat, at least this six-week segment of this retreat, about the perfections of the heart. But equanimity is one of them. And we've talked, given the teaching of the eight worldly winds, this oscillation that we all experience, that are always blowing. And there's a certain kind of way through noticing the ways of the world, noticing this process of change, and reflecting upon it deeply, that the mind can come to some sort of wisdom about the cycles of life, about the uncontrollability of fate, about accepting and letting go, and how to live in a more centered way. So sometimes one of the advantages of getting older is that you've seen some stuff. You know, you've seen some stuff, you've been through the ups and downs, you've seen the people around you go through 
through ups and downs. You've seen sure things completely fall apart. You've seen situations where it seemed like it was such a uh, a deep hole that you would never get out or there would be no recovery possible. And yet you've seen that change and you've lived through it. So some people as they get older actually do get wiser. <laughs> but not everybody. <laughs> eh? So this is all about what you do with your own heart and mind. You know, are, are you a trainable or are you not? Are you a trainable and are you in training? But certainly we can learn something about equanimity through life experiences. And the, the broad observation of human nature and the human life cycle and you know what does happen and what can happen and how the you know the job that you you craved and you trained you know eight years to get and it was going to be like the the best best thing that could ever happen and it was going to be the pinnacle and then you get the job and it like it's like wow man this is really stressful this is really stressful, this is really stressful, I don't get any time off, you know, it's like, this is really miserable. How these things can can change, very easily change one to another, right? So there's a a woman who is a musician who's got uh, some association with the Spirit Rock Center in, in Fairfax, California, and she's got a CD out called Commentary on Perfections of the Heart. So this, she takes the, the paramitas and she's written a song for each one of them. And it's, uh, it's good driving music. <laughs> so this is what she, what she says about equanimity. She says, she sings this. I, I won't cause you to suffer this evening. <laughs> it's like this. It can be no other way. Everything that came before has led us to this moment. It's like this. So open and let go. Bring awareness and acceptance to this moment as it passes. Here I am, life arising as it will. How can I bend gracefully with the winds surrounding me? Here I am, life brings both sorrow and joy, letting go the fight, the blame, deep calm infuses me. Stand in the heart of the moment, inner stability, return to a place of stillness, equanimity. Just this much, seeing clearly into now, no need for all the stories, just naming what is present, just this much, without reactivity. I don't have to push, to clutch, I can simply let it be. Stand in the heart of the moment, inner stability, return to a place of stillness, equanimity. Stay awake to indifference, don't care, You can hear your heart respond without getting swept away. Stay awake, the promises are great. Radiance, 
exalted mind are the praises Buddha sang. So this is a reflection and a cultivation of the insight of the value of equanimity in daily life. So that kind of paramita wisdom reflection aspect of the cultivation is one method. And another method, which we've been doing here, is the cultivation of equanimity via insight meditation. Now, when people first start to meditate, one of the things that um, they have to come to terms with are the instructions, which, as you have probably noticed by now, encourage people to accept pleasant, unpleasant and difficult experiences which may arise as valid meditation objects. Now this is really counterintuitive, right? And probably most of us when we first went to meditation went with the understanding or perhaps the hope or perhaps even a deep-seated delusion that what we were going to find when we sat down upon the cushion was, you know, bliss, peace, light, love, happiness, joy. Okay, you get some of that. But we find as we turn to the mind stream as it it is in real time that there's a lot of other things that we also experience. And you may have noticed this. So in the early stages of practice, people think that having difficult and unpleasant experiences is a sign that they're doing something wrong. Did you ever have that feeling? that you're doing something wrong because things are difficult or unpleasant. So, and yet, this quality of equanimity is actually developed out of a process that connects not only with uh, things that are preferred, but it connects with, it doesn't reject any experience. So all the ways of experience, pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. But our mind doesn't like that. Our mind, you know, wants the pleasant things through the things that we approve of or that we find easeful. And it doesn't want the other things. So very often in practice, in earlier stages of practice and even in later stages of practice at certain points, There's a kind of swinging back and forth between trying to get it to be the way that we want it to be or think think it should be and then fighting with the stuff that's actually happening that we don't like or we think is illegitimate or we think is wrong. So the mind isn't, um, isn't in the middle with things in the way uh, I described equanimity earlier in the talk. Right? It's in a push-pull relationship with things. But, you know, the the swing between wanting and not wanting will eventually stop 
if the mind gets better at learning to attend to whatever is happening, no matter what it is, whether or not it's what we expect or what, what we approve of, what we like, what we don't like, really the training of the mind is to be steady and to bring the same kind, the same kind of attention to it, no matter what it is. To have the same kind of practice rules in relationship to meeting the object, no matter what it is, with the exception of those circumstances where a strategic regrouping is indicated, meaning a, a redirection or uh, an interruption or a, a temporary uh, backing off. But otherwise, it's sit <laughs> or walk, see what it is, be present to it. So learning how to do that gradually decreases reactivity in the mind. So in insight practice, we learn how to practice with the four foundations of mindfulness, right? So the question is always, what's happening now? What is it now? How is it now? not picking and and choosing among things, but letting them arise and and be known as they, they are and then meeting them, or at least trying to meet them, training the mind to meet them with evenness of mind. That phrase, evenness of mind, that sort of sounds like the description of equanimity at the earlier place in the talk. So this mindful investigation of everything, but you know, the mind doesn't like this because it's not used to it and it has its preferences. And you know, this is part of where the big storms come up in practice. You know, something is going on that the mind uh, doesn't like and doesn't approve of. And in the early stages of the arising of that thing that one doesn't like or doesn't approve of, the mind, instead of turning towards it and meeting it with this uh, investigative stability, either tries to ignore it or tries to hold on to something that, that it prefers. And in the absence of the supervision of mindfulness, the state inflates. But that's okay. So then we have a situation where things are stormy and uneven. So then the question is, well, can the mind bring that kind of evenness and stability of mind to the experience of things being uh, stormy and uneven? Because that's now the main thing that's happening, right? Can the mind be with that? And maybe not. Okay, so then can the mind be with the rejection of the hindrance that's present. Can it take that rejection of, I don't want to be with it, I don't like it, I want it to go away. Can it be even and steady in the recognition of that truth? Okay, if that's not possible, can it then be with the anger (laughs) that's present, (laughs) with the fact that it can't be with the hindrances, right? Because that's the main thing that's happening. So it doesn't matter how many 
rings out you need to go, you can just go out and out and out from the, the initial kernel experience that caused the reaction or caused the rejection or caused the arising uh, of clinging just in the interest of sustaining that, that steadiness, that evenness of mindful knowing. So the basic instruction calls on the mind to regard and to treat everything in the same way, knowing it mindfully, investigating all arising predominant objects, right? So this isn't a strategy of repressing reactivity. Right? One of the things I said earlier is like repression and suppression is, is not what's being talked about when equanimity is being described. So you can see, for instance, that we turn the mind towards hindrances. We acknowledge them, recognize them, turn towards hindrances when they're in the predominant experience. So we kind of invited into the tent of this uh, mindful awareness. Now, sometimes it's interesting uh, in converse, uh, practice meetings, um, how situations of difficulty are described because it's a really common thing um, for people to describe experiences as negative. You know, like, this was a good experience, this is, was a negative experience that happened in my practice. But really from our perspective of training the mind to meet experience, um, we don't have negative experiences. <laughs> we just have experiences, right? The negative piece of it is the mind adding on uh, an evaluative comment that points to the, the likelihood that the mind is actually holding the experience as being illegitimate in some way. Like it shouldn't be there. I shouldn't be having this kind of experience. Well, if the causes and conditions are there for it to happen, that's what it's going to be. It's going to be just like that, to go back to what Eve was saying. It, given everything that's happened, it could be no other way. <clears throat> so this capacity of the mind to, to open to, to accept, to allow, and be present with things as they are, <clears throat> involves a growth in calm and concentration, as well as a strengthening of mindfulness. And the mind gradually learns that this is the idea just to keep being present with what's there, the way it's coming up, and develop some skill in doing so. And as the mind gets closer to its experience and sustains continuity more, more you start to recognize things like big emotional storms, those things that, you know, can sweep us away, you start to realize, okay, there's a lot of different things that's happening in one of those experiences. You know, there's the, there's the unpleasant piece. Um, there's the thoughts. There's the emotions. There's the sensations in the body. There's the, the change of that state, for instance, of uh, 
resistance to a state of fear. And then there's a change of that uh, experience of fear into the desire to get it, make it stop. But that these things are one experience after another, after another, after another. When we get closer to them, we start to see them more as a, stream, a stream of different things rather than just as a confusing amalgamation of you know, this, uh, this oppressive uh, cloud of suffering. And when the mind starts to recognize some of these things, it starts to see how the struggle to con- control actually creates suffering and that letting go ends it. And that the energies of the mind that go into recognizing and receiving its experience, when they're not split by this tendency of mind to fight against what's being experienced or to substitute something else to it, actually provides support and safety and the strengthening of mindfulness and all the other wholesome factors that are present. So the mind starts to understand, okay, there's a kind of poised non-resistance here that is really the power place. This is what we're going for, poised non-resistance to experience. And that approach works because it ends the struggle and the suffering of fighting with things that can't be controlled. So then as the mind starts to treat everything in a more equal fashion, the preferences start to loosen and then the hindrances themselves start to abate, they start to to weaken. And with that, there's a strengthening of the seven factors of mindfulness and it's easier to be with things as they are. When we can rest in knowing that things present themselves exactly as they are, and when the mind can accept that they're there legitimately and accept them in that way because they are the way they have to be in that moment, then we can actually see them more clearly. So there's a certain kind of way in which equanimity perfects mindfulness, strengthens and supports it, as well as the other factors of awakening. Now there's a a way of describing how the mind opens up in the process of Vipassana or insight practice called uh, the progress of insight. And from this uh, way of describing the mind opening up in Vipassana practice, here's a a description from a a stage of the mind developing an opening called the knowledge of arising and passing away. So this, this is how this stage is described. And I use the, uh, the, pronoun them here, so. There also arises in them strong equanimity associated with insight, which is neutral towards all formations. The mind is neutral towards all formations. 
That's not suggesting the Vedana of all formations is neutral. But it's saying the mind is not for, not against. It's neutral in relationship to what is being experienced. Under its influence, they regard with neutrality even their examination of the nature of those formations with respect to their being impermanent, etc. And they're able to notice keenly and continuously the bodily and mental processes arising at that time. Meaning, even when the mind is starting to recognize the impermanence of everything and how everything is is completely unstable because it's conditioned and the conditions are changing all the time, the mind is not freaking out about it at this point. Instead, it's still able to notice keenly and continuously the bodily and mental processes arising at the time. Then their activity of noticing is carried on without effort and proceeds, as it were, of itself. So there's not a resistant or a disconnected strain in the mind stream, in in, um, the awareness that's being applied. Also, in adverting to objects, meaning turning the mind towards objects, there arises in them strong equanimity by virtue of which their mind enters, as it were, quickly into the objects of advertence. Meaning when the mind turns to an object of meditation, the mind goes into it, penetrates the experience, sees deeply into it, sees uh, how it is, how it is manifesting, what it's composed of, if it's a compound phenomenon. So the mind, another way of putting it is, the mind is really landing on their experience. It really has close connection with the texture of what's being known. And this is happening without the mind trying to know it, trying to perceive it. It's just happening. It's just happening all on its own. So when the mind moves into this, kind of way of knowing, which as I explained earlier is kind of an emergent way of knowing. You can't just put your mind in this gear because you know from reading that it exists somewhere. The mind develops into this through the process that I was describing earlier by learning what wise attention is, and learning how to sustain it in relationship to whatever is present. But when the mind actually uh, deepens its capacity to be present and attend in this kind of way, a very uh, deep letting go can actually happen. This is the arising of what you could call the peace that passes understanding. And it's from states of deep equanimity, also called high equanimity, that classic enlightenment experiences arise. So, you know, this is the path um, to get to the threshold where things that are these classic attainments can happen. And they happen on their own. 
It's not like you make it happen, like it happens. (laughs) So that's something about how equanimity opens and develops through the process of uh, insight meditation. And you can see the kernel of it or the nub of it is all right there in the beginning with how the mind is coached to attend to objects in the instructions of how to be present to experience, how, how to know it, how to connect with it, how to sustain that connection, how to work with difficulties, how to learn how to work, recognize hindrances and open to them and work with them. So the third way to practice equanimity and to strengthen it is equanimity meditation itself. And this is equanimity cultivation as a relational practice. So tomorrow there will be a guided equanimity practice offered in the hall. But So I'll say just a few things about that uh, tonight and then I'm sure there'll be uh, a bit more about it before there's the the guided uh, (coughs) period itself. But, you know, there are four Brahma-viharas, the first of which is metta, which is the wellspring of the rest. So there's metta, goodwill, karuna, compassion, mudita, empathetic joy, and then equanimity. So this is an interesting one, equanimity. So the, the first three, you can kind of like see it, right? Metta, and that's goodwill, and then there's suffering, then, you know, compassion goes forward and meets suffering, and then there's the recognition of happiness or success or well-being, and then mudita, you know, arises to recognize and um, cheer that on. But so what's what's the deal with equanimity? Because <coughs> it doesn't sound, you know, so warm and fuzzy as the other three, right? It doesn't sound like so heart expressive. And yet equanimity is also a heart quality. It has a kind of steadiness, a kind of steadfastness to it. So in the first three, you know, there are thoughts and wishes towards yourself and others of a particular kind. But a wisdom reflection about those thoughts and wishes for yourself and for others would be, and we don't control it. And often when the instructions on Brahma Viharas are first given to to someone, those those of us who are, are of a, a more uh, aversive cast of mind often, you know, will raise their hand and say something like, "Yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, what makes the the you know the the hawk ha- happy isn't good for the rabbit, right? Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. So this this equanimity." this equanimity piece recognizes that our thoughts and our wishes and even our actions alone don't control what happens for self or for others. 
So things happen due to causes and conditions and not our wishes. So this uh, Brahma Vihara of equanimity embraces a wisdom which protects the mind from discouragement and frustration when our lack of control becomes clear. So even though we may have every intention and every wish, and then can the mind still have an open heart but let go when it needs to? Can it let go of what is uh, unskillful insistence when circumstances are such that we cannot force or control the outcome. So this is where the heart is very much like a mountain, patient, composed, not thrown off, not deterred in its good wishes, its goodwill or any of that. But it knows what is skillful and what isn't. And it can get let go of a reactive kind of insistence. So some of the kinds of phrases that are typically used in equanimity practice when equanimity is being trained as one of the Brahma Viharas might be something like, uh, may I be balanced, may I be at peace. Or another phrase would would be, may I learn to see the arising and passing away of things with equanimity and balance. May I be open, balanced, and peaceful. Or may you be open, balanced, and peaceful. Because one can wish equanimity for others just in the same way that you could wish loving kindness for others, right? And then a classic version of this is, all beings are the heirs of their karma. Their happiness or or unhappiness is dependent on their actions, not just upon my wishes. That's a good phrase for uh, those of us who have tendency towards (laughs) over-involvement of a particular nature. So there'll be more on that for you tomorrow, that particular method of cultivation. And then the last thing uh, to talk about, and just briefly, is uh, jhana practice and the cultivation of the material jhanas of which equanimity is one. So... This particular kind of cultivation is the cultivation of deep states of concentration that start with the use of the breath, awareness of the breath to unify the mind. So you're you're picking the breath as the specific object to start with and using that particular single object as a way to gather the energies and the attention and the focus of the mind until the energies unify and the mind unifies around that particular thing. And then there's a whole set of instructions that go on from there where um, 
one starts by inviting and sustaining specific of what are called mental factors necessary to create that particular kind of concentration. So generally one would start with the first jhana, then the second jhana, and then the third jhana, and then the fourth jhana. There are four material jhanas. And in each one of these jhanas, uh, for, for each jhana as they move to the higher jhana, there is a, either a change of mental factors being cultivated or some of the previous mental factors drop off. So by the time you get to the cultivation of equanimity as a jhana, you're cultivating basically uh, equanimity and single-pointedness, one-pointedness. That's what's being uh, uh, caused to arise in the mind. And the, the state of concentration that opens up through that is a very uh, simple and peaceful abiding where the, there's a unified state of deep tranquility and non-reactivity that's quite cool in its nature, but cool in a very mm, Yeah, cool in a very cool way. <laughs> so, so this cultivation allows the mind to both cultivate concentration and a wholesome state at the same time, and it's very refreshing to the, uh, the mind and the body. And it also strengthens this particular quality of mind in the mind stream and then supports the ability to do other kind of practices, right? because you're going to practice, for instance, say you then turn to um, um, the practice of uh, insight meditation, you're turning to it with a mind that has both gathered concentration and it is in a state of non-reactivity. And you can, you know, imagine what a benefit that would be when you sit down on the cushion and, you know, start to open the mind to other kinds of objects. So, and thus I think I should end our tour of uh, equanimity as a, as a mental state, uh, as a expression of wisdom. You know, the Buddhist teachings don't take equanimity as its endpoint. The endpoint in the Buddhist teachings, as I understand it, is um, the cultivation of uh, liberating wisdom, right? Or the transformation of mind and transformation of understanding through non-clinging of letting go of craving. And yet this quality of mind is very much interwoven with the path of development. So even though we could say, you know, the, the mind, uh, equanimity uh, is not the end point, it's not the goal, a mind that has uh, attained wisdom and has touched liberation is a mind that has equanimity. So this seventh of the seven factors of awakening is 
something that you've actually been developing here in the three months or six weeks that you've been training the mind. So maybe what that means is the the next time you have something uh, happen in your practice that where your mind's first reaction is, this is negative, maybe the little equanimity buzzer will go off in your mind and go, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's that? Oh yeah, it's just another, it's just another thing to attend to. It's just another part of the palate. It's just I'm not liking that much now. <laughs> not liking, not liking. <laughs> wanting it to go away, wanting it to go away, wanting it to go away. Attending, attending, attending. Because right? that's, that's really the path. That same attitude of mind, same way of being with, with everything, same way of attending to things with variation only to support skillfulness, not preference. Yeah, that's good for now. So may the the merit of our practice of hearing the Dhamma and of offering the Dhamma be a cause and condition for our own awakening and be of benefit to all beings without exception.